Welcome to episode two of Australia's Next Steps. This is the Aspie podcast that aims to look beyond the pandemic and ask, what's next for Australia? It's a four-part mini-series brought to you by Oracle. I'm your host, Michael Shoebridge, Aspie's Director of Defence Strategy and National Security. This week, we're talking about the future of work for Australia, how the pandemic has already changed work in Australia, what we've learned, how we've adapted, and where we maybe need to do a bit more thinking and adaptation. So I'm going to talk with David Schofield. Uh, David is Principal Consultant on Leadership, Teams and Organisational Culture with Ben Delta. And I'm also talking with Oracle's Brenda Banning, uh, Lead for Architecture Development and Industry Strategy. Both David and Brenda have been working in their own organisations and with their partners and customers to adapt to current conditions, but more importantly, they've been casting their minds forward to think through how this chronic crisis might restructure work in Australia over the longer term. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Well, Brenda and David, thank you so much uh, for joining me for this podcast on the future of work. Uh, seems like a fascinating time to have this discussion because a lot of the things we thought were hypothetical uh, we're right in the middle of experiencing. So remote working seems much more possible than many organizations told themselves. Um, so it'd be interesting to talk with both of you about what we're learning through this and where companies are making investments, what the experience is. Be great also to sort of get beyond the hype a little bit and say, um, what are some of the challenges and what about as the, the crest of the pandemic passes, what old habits might reassert themselves? Um, and also talk a little bit about what needs more thinking about as we settle down after the immediate rush to remote working. You know, what are some of the vulnerabilities and areas where we need a bit more thinking? But Brenda, I wonder, you know, from a from big companies' perspective that really is in the middle of information technology, how does this shift to remote working uh, look to you, both from the company and from working with partners? From our end, uh, we had been doing a fair bit of internal working uh, virtually uh, across the various offices. We have many people that are not co-located in specific offices. But what we were very much surprised with is as we've moved into this uh, new virtual working world is as we, we brought this into the customers and, and working with customers, we've been getting good engagement with, with the customers. Brenda, you were just talking about um, what you're learning about how to, how to engage with customers and partners. And I wanted to ask you, is it easier to engage with the customers and partners that you had already than new partners and new customers that you're starting to work with? How would you describe that in the remote working world? Definitely. I, I do think there is something to be said for for having that, that personal uh, connection. So it, it is much easier to carry on. Um, I think what, what we're finding is quite often it, it isn't a, a whole new customer set. Um, there'll be one or two people uh, when we're having the discussions who you may already have known. And so I, I think there is a, a little bit of that follow on. Um, where there's somebody in the room who knows you and, and has a relationship and has start, you've started to build trust with, that, that the rest mm-hmm. of the room is, is more likely to um, engage and, and get engaged. Whereas I think if it, 
Mm. So they're like they're like the seed corn for the relationship in a way. If you've got that pre-existing relationship with somebody, then it can grow uh, with with the broader group, even if there are new people in there. Yeah, David, I wanted to bring you in here. I think you've got some interesting thoughts about how well, organisations are congratulating themselves on moving fairly uh, successfully to remote working rather than in office working. But how much of that success do you think is based on previous bonds of, of workers and, and people? Yeah, I think this is the bit that's going to be really interesting to see as it plays out. Because at the moment, in sort of response to the you know, pretty immediate crisis, we're working with people we largely know. And so you know, we have a bond. We're able to understand that the motivations of each other, understand we're doing our best and move past any kind of complications. I think if... It, so virtual working keeps playing out for a longer time, we'll, we'll start to get a larger percentage of our people that we're working with might not be people we've met face-to-face. Uh, so the neuroscience would say that you know, whilst we still might um, be able to work quite well and get a good connection over the virtual, uh, the virtual platforms, we don't relate to each other in the same way. So we're not um, you know, sharing the, sort of the chemicals that are going on inside our brain and building um, you know, what people refer to as you know, a cocktail of trust. Mm. Yes, yeah, interesting. So that might be a distinction between people that have gone to this remote working having already known each other and worked together and the kind of new hires. We might see a split uh, in organisations between those two different workforces is what you're suggesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, what what else have we learnt out of this remote working experience? Because, you know, speaking from my point of view, Aspie, it's an organisation of about 60 people. We went through a sort of first flush of, you know, every day we had multiple video conferences and there were large numbers of people on the, on the end of the video conference who were desperately trying to keep that social contact and that direct interaction going. This is week five for us now and we've kind of moderated back because we've realised too much Zooming can be more than enough. Uh, so we've kind of throttled back to keep a, a mix of that virtual interaction and, and video interaction, but also realising that actually we need to give people time to work and think beyond all the virtual interaction. How's how's your experience been, Brendan? Uh, very similar. I think uh, what we found was you just ended up with meetings getting getting stacked up. I think there was a bit of a concern at first that you didn't have the ability to bump into somebody and have a conversation. So people ended up having all of these these meetings put together and and you don't have to put in travel time between the meetings. So you you didn't have the time to mm. let your brain actually take in and soak in what you had had in the last meeting and prepare yourself for for the next meeting. So you actually have mm. needed... So what we call travel time was actually downtime and thinking time yeah. yeah yeah that's that's our experience yeah david how about you oh yeah talking to people about it i've heard uh referred to you just become a statue you sort of you know sat in the seat um it's as though in the work sense you just sat in a meeting room and everyone just filed in and out and you never got to leave so um right. part of that part of that i think was people having it you know the, sort of almost a traumatic separation from everyone so you want to see people and you want to be connected again I think there's also a bit around if we're sitting in an office and you know you, Michael and Brett are having a conversation, I can kind of hear that and go, that doesn't really apply to me and tune out. I can pick up the bits and sort of chip in if I need to. When all that's happening without me, you know, I can have a bit of FOMO, I can have a sense of distrustful almost. Um, mm. And it's, you know, you kind of have to get the sense of I need to be able to let go. 
And, yes. and so come back to that bit around who do I trust? If I know people really well, I can trust them. And I know that you yeah, might not do it the same way as I would. That doesn't mm. mean my way was going to be better than theirs. So I can let that happen. And now if I don't know people, I might want to get more involved. So mm. we're having that, um, you know, moving now, I think, to a more judicious, judicious approach. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a common experience. The other thing I'm interested in is so we pretty much just grabbed all the remote working tools that we had to hand. So, you know, we didn't do a whole lot of assessment and thinking. We just grabbed what was there. Again, I mentioned Zoom before with the phenomenal rise of tools like that or Microsoft Teams. You know, it's really what products did we have to hand that we could start using really quickly. But in that rush, I think we overlooked some things. You know, security is one. We'll talk about that later. But another one is, uh, so video conferencing is great, but in the physical meeting phenomenon, we bring other tools along. So, you know, there'll be a whiteboard there. There'll be uh, drafts of stuff that people pass around and different props. What kind of additional technological tools to bring some of that physical work meeting interaction, some of the tools there. Brenda, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think, you know, a lot of these um, WebEx, Zoom teams, as, as you've mentioned, they, they all actually have within them um, some capability for whiteboarding and, and being able to mark things up in that. I think one of the areas, and it's interesting, is it's an area where people haven't really experimented with it. It was more of, of a, a gimmicky thing. And, and I think, you know, if, if we're going to have more prolonged times with this, we're going to have to get good at those tools um, and we're going to have to get comfortable. I think there's, there's a level of comfort that's very, very different from drawing something on a whiteboard uh, in, a, in, you know, on a, on a screen, um, even the size of the letters, everything. Um, to actually having being in a room with somebody and whiteboarding something together and, and passing it along. That's mm. a whole different way of, of working with each other. And I think, you know, as we were talking before about that view of trust, if you don't have the same level of, of trust amongst the group, the, the people using the whiteboard and the people who actually will have the confidence to go and, and put up uh, ideas and interact. I, I, you, we will have more people left at the back of the room, <laughs> equivalent in the virtual mm. world. Yeah, interesting. So even though you know, there's at the point that David brought out about everyone feels like they have to pay attention because they don't have some of the other cues. We might inadvertently in this everybody's participating be not taking full advantage of the diversity of our teams um, because. Those kind of behaviours uh, that we see, those that are already close and trust each other might be the ones that speak up or pick up the virtual whiteboard first. Uh, this brings out another thing. I've, I've really noticed a much bigger focus uh, on leadership and leading by example, but also really taking account of that well-being idea of how am I, how my people actually feeling? I need to pay much more attention to that in this remote world than just being able to assume that everything at home is fine in, in the daily office environment. So uh, are you expecting, uh, as this goes on, that that, that organisational culture is going to shift 
to give much more than lip service to the ideas of well-being and mental health, because I think we're starting to see that. Um, so definitely in our side, I, I, the idea of well-being, and, and one of the things that we've seen is, is a whole bunch of channels come up with different ideas around well-being. How do you rise above the current situation? Uh, and just much more tools, whereas before, you know, within HR, there was a well-being activity that was happening and, and people engaged or not. So it was being offered, but it, it wasn't necessarily right top of mind. And, and I, what I've seen is where there's a bunch of different communities and people have, have come together. So it's not just HR that's, that's now putting out this well-being, but you're seeing different communities within the employee groups coming up and, and having their way of, of how do I help and, and promoting well-being across, you know, our parents with young kids or whatever in certain different scenarios are, are creating their own communities of support around that, um, which we never had before. It was much more of a, a corporate program. Yeah, and I think uh, looking at it, it becomes more the leader's job. There's a lot of people who sort of a more traditional approach to leading a team is you know expect people to essentially take their take your humanity out and leave that on the side you know the footpath and then come into work and be a robot well we're not doing that anymore because work's come to you in your house um and so you, you see people much more willing to accept imperfections and you know that that poor guy in uh, south korea a few years ago had the in the middle of a, a live tv interview had his you know children come in and all the rest of it and everyone's like oh it's terrible that's, that's happening to all of us now you know, we're all doing that. Someone's cats walking across the screen. All those things are going on. So, is it is a bit where it helps because we can see people, and we can see whether the wealth their welfare is kind of struggling. There's a, a real onus now on leaders to do more to talk to people. I've seen one discussion around the challenge where some leaders might not want to do that. I might feel they're intruding uh, because I'm now you know, coming into your house essentially to talk to you about these things. But if you don't do it on the other side, the employee can sit back and feel they're just being ignored. So uh, to me, it's just like have the conversations around none of us have done this before. So we, we, we shouldn't expect ourselves to be perfect at it. What's the right balance? How do I make sure that you're okay without imposing on you and, and sort of becoming big brotherish? Yeah, well, that's, that's fascinating. One comment I was going to have is um, leaders I've seen thrive in this environment are the ones who have shown a bit of their own vulnerability. So, you know, your point about teleporting into people's houses, well, one way that that seems to be being managed with the good examples I've seen is where the leaders themselves are letting people teleport into their, their houses rather than just insisting on barging into others, and that that's causing a bond there. But I wondered, you know, we're, we're sort of talking it up a bit as well as we're talking about some of the problems, but as this real pressure of the pandemic passes, there's two things, I think. Will we just simply go back to how we were? And I, I think not, David. I think you've got some good thoughts on that. But also, what about as old behaviours reassert themselves? So we, we all know that presenteeism, you know, where I have to be seen to be at work by my boss because that'll be good for my career. I'm working harder than the people around them. Uh, and also that sense of hierarchy. You know, bosses, a lot of them like to have groups of people around them because that's where a lot of the status comes from. Will we see some of those old behaviours want to reassert themselves, you know, whether it's months or, or weeks from now? What, what are your thoughts about that? And are, are we even right thinking about this as there's a post-COVID world? Yeah, well, I think that's the, that's the place to start. And it's, you know, it's an assumption that needs to be examined. 
We all sort of live in a world that is so complex, everything that's moving on, that we're trying to go for the simple story. So we break out the sense of there was before, there's kind of this crisis period, and then there'll be after the crisis. And like, well, the reality might be that COVID remains in the community for the foreseeable future, uh, you know, for forever, possibly. And that means you then have everybody needs to be in the, you know, this a state of almost of limbo. And if they remain in limbo, that becomes a problem of, I need to be able to work it off in the office, but I also might need to, this is a normal thing. Hey guys, someone's come, you know, contracted COVID. We're all going to be at home now for the next two weeks. Uh, and so, you know, as I was saying, if you sit in a limbo there, that becomes ultimately you know, disruptive and you can't do anything. If you just recognize that that's how we now start to work, then you change the way you approach it and you start to look at putting in place structures where it becomes less of a concern of where I'm working um, and we just adapt. I liked, I, th- I think I've heard you talk about it as, and I'm, I'm, it's probably not your term, but this is not so much an acute crisis, but it's a chronic crisis. So this is Harvard psychologist Bob Keegan talking about it. An acute crisis, you know, like a bushfire. Here's the bushfire, really, really intense. We need to adapt. We need to save ourselves and get out of the way. But then it passes and we rebuild. Yeah, of course. He's chronic pain. Yeah, continues. Yeah. Chronic, yeah. yeah. So so this is a yeah. chronic crisis where it's just something we've got to learn to live with rather than it's it's an acute event that will pass. Yeah. Yep. And that leads to that needing to be in two states, being able to go back to the office environment, but also be able to work from the home environment. It's kind of a hybrid work future that you're talking about. Brenda, how does that look to you? No, I, I would agree. And if it's not this uh, scenario, I think there will be other things rolling through right now. And as you said, it could be 18 months, it could be the next two years, and it could be for a very long time that we will have events where getting everybody together in a public forum or in an office will not be appropriate and we'll need to to move back. And I think that will also come together with what companies are looking at for their office space, how they organize their office space. Um, will there be changes in you know the open office concept? Will desks be getting bigger? Will they have rotations of people coming in so that not everybody's in the office uh, together? And how does that change in the density, less touchless things, having a more contactless life and, and even changing things as, as much as, as how we greet mm-hmm. each other? You know, th- this could come to be quite a cultural shift that we're seeing and, and some of it will be rolling. Um, some of it will be dependent upon, I'm going to say, you know, your circle and spheres um, of people that you have. And, and as you get more outside of the close sphere that you have, maybe less actual contact with those individuals than we've we've seen mm-hmm. in the past. So you know this this will be something that will be, I believe, in the psyche for for a while. Well, it to could come. upend some very strong concepts that we've had before. Like one big one for the Australian public service has been this very strange word called densification, uh, driven by the idea that office space is expensive, so we should cram more people into the existing office space. Well, that seems a very bad idea in this uh, world of chronic COVID. Uh, So there's one change. But another big one is, what's the future of the CBD? A whole lot of sub-businesses depend on the big businesses having all their people assemble during the workday in those central business districts. Um, are we going to see a bit of a dispersal of CBDs? Uh, because even with this return to work future that we're talking about, 
it's not going to be the same. There'll be smaller populations, maybe shift work, maybe more dispersed. So some of those changes look kind of likely. It certainly does to, to me for, for the next, for the foreseeable future. And I do think that the virtual tools and as we've started to have more virtual meetings where there will be less pressure, people may be more part-time office work. And uh, so that you would have shifts of who's coming in the office. It will also put a pressure on cleaning. And, you know, if, if you are doing that type of, of shifting in, in who's coming in one day and the next, um, the level of cleaning that people would be looking for in between would be quite different than how offices get cleaned today. So once again, that, that will be a cost that companies are, are taking on um, as they, they shift. So I think there will be a shift in the types of employment out there overall. Um, where there could be a, an increase in, you know, in, in maintenance and, and cleaning type, um, and and a lot of pressure put on on cafes and and those types. I, you know, I, I know a lot of people have been missing their coffee at the moment, um, and and one of the big things they're looking forward to is going to a cafe. So I think in part way, in our psyche, we want to have at least in those small meetings and, and groups and, and would like to go to, to the cafe, but there's a huge proportion of cafes that that's nice, but they survive on the office workers yes. coming in. And, and and maybe they won't be there in the those the I'm just wondering that this is very office work specific, isn't it? So I'm just wondering if we can just broaden it out. Think about some of the other sectors. So, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is office-based work being able to be done remotely and new kind of tools. But let's think about, say, the education sector. And I, I think there we start getting the idea the future is going to be quite sector specific when it comes to work. So I can imagine universities delivering a whole lot of content digitally without having to fly students from around the world to their campuses. That's, that's a developmental area that's being driven by this crisis. But I find it much harder to imagine that for primary school education, where Young children need that interaction with their teacher. And, and some of it, frankly, is about socialization in groups at school to prepare themselves for broader society. So I think it's quite interesting to talk about some of the sectors. And David, a bunch of the people you know, maybe they don't even realize there's this big shift going on because their work's continuing just as it was before. Yeah, so I've, I've spent most of the last 10 years working in um, professional services. And what we're talking about now is, you know, work at home and, you know, sort of ducking in and out of teams is kind of how most professional services people work. People who are used to it will have adapted quite well. And it's just sort of like a prolonged version of what they might get to do if their client doesn't need them on site. Um, and the people who are sort of used to being around people all the time are the ones who are probably struggling the most because their mental model is entirely different to what's being presented to them. Uh, and one of the things that you, when you talk about the education uh, examples, you know, it's again, it's one of the really interesting parts of this is that we look at things in a certain way but, and forget that things aren't exactly always how we see them. So when we talk about primary school kids needing to be you know, with others to be socialised, Yes, but also there's kids you know, who do school of the air who don't have that. They, they've worked it out. If there are other ways for the, to get that socialisation inside families and sort of more extended family groups, then that's possible as well. Mm. Um, and, and looking at things like students, you know, universities now essentially could lament the loss of international students coming to campus or look at it and go, the world is now open to me. Mm. You know, and because it's not 
one of the things in my mind around all this all the time is it's not so much that the students might not want to come, but the employers of those or potential future employers of those students might look down their nose at, oh, that was a virtual degree. That's not the same. Well, guess what? Everyone's living that way now. So we're now becoming much more tolerant. And we, as we're all, all discovered, you know, you can actually have pretty decent interactions through these platforms when everyone's accepting of it. So the old, the comparator has changed and that opens up lots of possibilities as to what might actually be you know, workable for mm. organizations. So I wonder what you're really talking about there is see this ability to deliver digitally as a much bigger opportunity, not just to keep your market, but maybe to grow it. You know, I think I've, I've heard you talk, David, about GPs. You know, why why yeah. have a GP constrained to their local area of practice if they can do teleconsultations? They can consult someone wherever. Yeah, and it, so the uh, the government didn't allow that before, by and large. Uh, in a time of crisis, they've said, that's okay, let's get that done. And if that's proven to be still reasonably decent um, approach, other than when they obviously need to poke and prod you to, te to test things, then, you know, if I live in Canberra and have to pay $70, $80, $90 every time I go to the doctor, I'm going to be really excited to see, you know, the rural GP who's offering a teleconsultation for basically for no gap. Mm. So, you know, they, there's a whole new market there. Mm. And Brenda, I, I just wanted to shift this now. I know we're running out of time, but when we start talking about sectors and uh, and also what we've learned and what we need to learn more about, I think about some sectors like the utility sector that are moving even more to Internet of Things connectivity. We've talked about that as a trend before, but they've been forced to go to this to, for more remote operation by dispersed workers. What do we need to do more thinking about in this chronic crisis world with this remote working? One thing that occurs to me is cybersecurity risks and vulnerabilities because we've just rushed to, to adoption. Uh, definitely. It's back to cybersecurity. I think it's more of an understanding and being educated um, as an organization because you need to look at what the risk is. And I think right now a lot of organizations have jumped in, as, as you said, without an understanding of really where the exposures are what the habits are of, of their their workers, where the workers themselves could be opening up new avenues for, for cyber threats, re-looking at the whole environment and the way you do the risk analysis on this. You brought up IoT and IoT is, is a um, very well-known spot for people to either hack in or change um, you know, information. That's an area where understanding the communications channels that are going to be in place, uh, whether or not there's encryption, et cetera, and, and how you put that in across the the whole network and what the organizations are putting in place. There's a whole lot that needs to be looked at in, in the overall infrastructure that's being put in place and the security around that to have people more informed about what the risks are and where they're willing to have the risks and actually where they, they should be raising their hands and saying, look, this is this is risky scenario. I really think we should be looking forward. And and you know, the piece that always for me is is amazing is is the idea around your location tracking, et cetera, right? And people get very concerned about, you know, is government gonna start tracking my location so they know other people who have been around where I am, et cetera, right? So this is some of the concerns here. And yet the governments are using reports from Google who have anonymized their data to tell you what all the behavior changes are in country by country. 
who's going to the store less, who's going to the park less. So that whole view around privacy and cybersecurity, I, I think there just needs to be a whole lot mm. more education. David, any any thoughts there? Uh, I think the, the security bit's really interesting. And again, it's the comparators have changed. So before when I didn't need to, you know, government, government knowing who I'd been around uh, was only, you know, only in, in a position, then I might be all against it. Now, if I look at that and say that might save my life or someone else's life, well, you know, I might not run into it and going like, yes, please, you look, let me just call you and tell you where I am. But we might be much more willing to accept that little bit of imposition, you know, without opening the can of worms in this discussion of who's the one who decides when it goes away and, you know, under what conditions. But yeah, I think the comparison, the comparator is what the one that we really need. Well, look, I, th- I think this has been a fantastic discussion. I mean, it would be great to have another version of this uh, a few months on to see how, how some of this has played out. But to me, you know, some of the big messages coming out of this are uh, remote working is much more possible than, than we all thought it was before. Uh, it's got some real advantages for organizations and some of the obstacles we thought were there were illusory. But we're starting to learn about how to do this well and where we've gone in too fast too early, where we need to moderate back. And we've also, I think we're starting to think through some of those bigger issues around, say, well-being uh, and around security. But one big thing that's come out of this to me is that organizations really need to think more about this as a chronic crisis than an acute crisis and plan that way, um, which might lead to a bit of a hybrid approach of remote working and in-location working. But if we're not structuring ourselves like that, we're probably going to be far less well positioned uh, than, than if we do it that way. But also that idea of it's chronic rather than acute, I think that is something as this goes on, uh, some of the, the risk acceptance we've seen around cybersecurity vulnerabilities, around some of the tools we're using, that risk lens will, will sort of reset things because it's fine to accept a higher risk when, when you're in an acute crisis, but when it's, it's ongoing, that risk appetite changes. So it'd be great, as I say, to have this future of work discussion a little bit in the future, but I think we can already see uh, some of the promise that that we'd read about is real and some of the hype wasn't necessary. So thank you both very much indeed for for the time. Thanks, Brenda. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Well, that brings us to the close of episode two of Australia's Next Steps, the future of work in Australia. Thank you to both Brenda and David for their time and the insight they've shared with me in this episode. Uh, As always, we want to hear your thoughts about what you've heard here today. And please engage with Aspie on Twitter at Aspie underscore org. We'll be back shortly with our next episode, Australia's Next Steps, the future of nation building in Australia. Stay well, stay productive, and please keep listening. Thanks very much. Bye.